smartphone, if that's what you use, whatever, turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start a series today on this wonderful text of Romans chapter 8, this chapter of all chapters. Romans chapter 8, if you're using the church Bible, that's page 944. Without a doubt, Romans 8 is one of the best known, best loved, most needed chapters in the New Testament, indeed in the whole Bible. I, I, I think it's the best chapter in the Bible. Now, I'm a superlative kind of guy. I'm always saying things like, you know, oh man, that was the most awesome cheesesteak hoagie. Health concerns, I'm in my 60s. That was the most awesome radish salad that I ever had, you know. <laughs> but So I'm not alone when I say this is the best chapter. For instance, some of you may uh, know 10th Presbyterian Church down in Philadelphia. Former pastor there, now with the Lord, Jim Boyce. When he preached on this chapter, his title of the sermon was the best chapter in the whole Bible. And we're saying that for good reason. Uh, my pastoral colleague down in South Carolina, a guy named Derek Thomas, here's what he wrote about Romans 8. It gives you a kind of feel for why it's such a significant chapter. No chapter of Scripture reaches the same level, both in terms of thought, I'm adding here now, both in terms of the content, in terms of the rhetoric, the, the, the movement of the flow of thought. No chapter of Scripture reaches the same level or covers the same ground as Romans 8. It's a description of the Christian life from death, we're born in sin, to life, new life in Christ, from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace, tranquility of the new heaven and earth. Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in its completeness. And it's true. I mean, this chapter, it, it, it goes from eternity past to eternity future. It provides us what I'll call a, a fully loaded present. Look at where it starts, Romans 8, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a text. And look at where it ends, verse 39. I'm convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. This is a, a chapter worth studying, worth coming back to time and again. It's a chapter worth memorizing, and I'm going to come to that next week. Uh, for this reason, I mean, for this single reason alone, it, it would be worth our while to take the next couple months, which we're going to do, and study Romans chapter 8. But there's another reason for studying it as we're going to. One that I wasn't fully expecting when I charted this course out several months ago. Uh, the best way to capture this second reason, and I can only just mention this second reason today, but we will get into it in the upcoming weeks. The best way to do it is to read from an article that came out this past week in the Christian Post. Here's the excerpt from the article. 
a report by the Pine Tops Foundation. That's a, a national Christian uh, grant-giving foundation. Uh, a report by the Pine Tops Foundation and the Veritas Forum. That's an organization that works on university campuses. This report projects that 35 million youths raised in Christian homes could leave the faith by 2050. The Christian population in the United States would decrease, as a result, to 54%. Currently, it's at 75%. It is the largest and fastest numerical, sh numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of this country, the report states. We're living in an age of resurgent unbelief. An age in which, just this last summer, several prominent Christians uh, publicly declared that they no longer considered themselves Christians. They lo no longer believed the Christian gospel. As, as one of them puts it, uh, they were deconstructing their faith. This is an age filled with battle after battle about faith in Jesus. Does it make sense to trust Jesus? Is it worth it to trust Jesus? Is it dangerous to trust Jesus? Is it irrelevant to trust Jesus? In Romans 8, Less because of any apologetica gives about the, the, the truthfulness or the historical validity of Christianity. I mean, that, that's there. It's less about that, but more about how it gets into our lives, into our souls. Romans 8 helps us battle these battles of unbelief. Because unbelief is out there and unbelief also can be in here, in our own lives, in our own hearts. The questions, the challenges, the doubts. Romans 8 is a gift from God to help us press forward in strong, durable, growing faith rather than a shrinking, withering faith. That's why I'm calling this series Resilient more than conquering the battles of unbelief. Now today, I have two goals. I really can't touch any more on issues of unbelief this morning. We'll come back to that, as I say, throughout the series. Today, I have two goals. Uh, one of them is a macro goal, a big picture goal, and then one of them is a micro goal. They're both, I would consider, major goals, we're going to spend most of the time on the macro goal, my major macro goal. And then we'll spend just a few minutes down at the end on my major micro goal. My macro goal is this. I want us together to hear the entire chapter of Romans 8. And for us to hear it means that I'm going to read it. And that's going to take about 10 minutes or so. Now you might say, oh, come on, just read the text and let's get on with the sermon. You know? But if you say that, you're forgetting a couple things. 
Number one, maybe you're not so much forgetting this, but maybe you're not aware of it. Number one, you forget that part of my calling as, as pastor here, as the spiritual leader of this congregation, is to preach and pray and exhort and lead and also to read Scripture. I say that because of the Apostle Paul's very clear instruction. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. He's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor. And this is what he says. Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now, we might have expected Paul, if he's, if he's, if he's going to put the Scripture reading thing in there, maybe he'd put it down at the end of the verse. It's kind of the least important. But look, at he, he puts it right at the top. Timothy, devote yourself. Give yourself over to the reading of Scripture. I take that as a job description for being a pastor. And that's why, you know, certainly here, but whenever I'm asked to preach elsewhere and preach elsewhere, I, I, will, I won't insist, but I will almost insist that I be allowed to read the text that I'm preaching from. Because I want to devote myself to the reading of Scripture and the teaching and exhortation that come out of it. So if nothing else, when in a few minutes I read Romans chapter 8, honor me, and my calling as I seek to honor Christ and pastor you in the apostolic way through the reading of Scripture. But, okay, you say, well, let's just get on with the sermon. Let, let, let me say a second thing to remind you. Never forget, when I'm reading Romans 8, never forget that what I am reading is the Word of God, the very oracles of God, the words that are, are God-breathed. If you listen with your heart, if you let it, God's word in itself will speak. It will capture you. It will speak to you. It will exhort you. It will confront you. It will encourage you. It will redirect you. I mean, we get so used to the Bible here, we take it for granted. And so we come to church and we say, you know, for the Bible, I want to hear what Pastor Matt says. I want to hear what Pastor Tracy says. Or you know, I want to turn on the on the on the radio. I don't, radio, excuse me, I'm, that's ten years old. Um, I, I want to turn on my podcast. I want to hear what H.P. Charles says, or Tony Evans says, or uh, Francis Chan says. It's good, but the Bible is God's word. Romans eight. Is God's word. Anything that I say, those are Matt's words. Hopefully they're valuable, but it's Romans 8. It is God's word. We just so get, get, get so used to it. Uh, when I was in India in August, if not the, one of the most poignant moments occurred when I was up in the north of the country. I was at, I was at a Bible school seminary up there training pastors. And I met this guy, about 30 years of age, who had entered the country of India secretly. He'd come from a neighboring place where Christianity is effectively forbidden. That place has worldwide one of the highest levels of persecution 
and that persecution comes from both the government of that place and as well from the person in the street. And this guy is about 30. He'd, he'd become a Christian. He wasn't raised in a Christian home. He converted, as did his wife. Fledgling church back in his town in, in, in that other place. About 30 people. His wife wasn't with him. She couldn't come. Too dangerous. But she told him, the reason he came is because she exhorted him, please, please, go. Please, study and learn the scriptures. We desperately need God's truth here. We need you to know the Bible. There's a woman in terms of our year verse. There's a woman of courage, love, and clear thinking. And this is God's word. Jeremiah, the prophet, has this personal testimony about the power of God's word inside of him. He says, God's word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I can't hold it in. God's word is, is a fire. Elsewhere, God's word is a hammer. God's word is living. In the New Testament, God's word is powerful. God's word is sharp. Please don't ever dismiss the reading of the word of God. It is not some segue or some throwaway moment in a worship service or in a Bible study or in a small group. Rather, it, it's, it's a holy, precious moment as God speaks and gets your attention through his word. It's how he speaks today. And so as I read it, I urge that you listen. I want you to listen. I want you to receive the word that's about to be read. Now, I encourage you. I'm not, I, you know, you, you have to choose however you want to do this, but I'm, I'm going to encourage you not to read along in the Pew Bible or on your smartphone or whatever Bible you might have in front of you as I read the whole of Romans 8. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, when you're looking at it on the page, there's great value to that. But as you look at it on the page, you're also aware of all kinds of other stuff going elsewhere in the book. I mean, on our page, you've got chapter 9 there, you know, chapter, the end of chapter 7, and that's valuable. But in the moment, I want you to focus on the particular verse that God's speaking to us. Back in the first century, Christians didn't read, the general rule, they didn't read the Bible. They didn't have the Bible as we know it today. Uh, when they gathered, scrolls, papyrus, Documents were, were read to them. Scrolls and manuscripts that we call today the books of the New Testament. They listened as it was read. They received. They heard. What I'm about to read is Romans chapter 8. The word of God. The same word of God that Christians in Rome in the middle of the first century received as a manuscript from the Apostle Paul. Now the chapter's long. It's also dense. I mean, Paul, 
Paul, I mean, there are many sections in Paul that are dense. This one is really dense. He's doing so much with so few words. So it's easy to kind of get kind of caught in an eddy and forget kind of the flow. So what I'm going to do is as I read it, I'm going to have projected up on the screen section headings. I'm not going to read the section headings. I'm just going to indicate that a new one is up there and they'll stay up there while I'm reading. But that way it can kind of help you kind of, if you kind of wanted a way to kind of reset in any case, just to kind of stay with the flow of what Paul's pushing forward here as he writes to the Romans and to a lesser or greater extent writes God's word to us today. I'm going to read, what I'm reading is basically the ESV, but I've... It's not one of my exploded translations, but I have at different points translated it as I see fit in light of the original Greek text. So I'm going to read to you now Romans chapter 8. So, because of all that God has done in Christ, there is now no condemnation for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. For the working of the spirit of life has set each of you believers free in Christ Jesus from the working of sin. And the working of sin always leads to death. God has done what the Old Testament law, weakened by our sinful flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a holy sacrifice for our sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. And as a result, the righteous intention of the law might now be fulfilled in us Christians who order our daily lives not according to the sinful flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who order their daily lives according to the sinful flesh set their minds on the things of the sinful flesh. But those who order their daily lives according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And to set the mind on the sinful flesh? Well, that's death. But to set the mind on the spirit, well, that is life and peace. For the mind set on the sinful flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Those who are living under the control of the sinful flesh can never please God. You, however, are not under the control of the sinful flesh. You are under the control of the Holy Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Even though your body is destined to die because of sin, 
Still, the Spirit brings life to you, eternal life to you, because of Christ's righteousness given to you. If the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies one day. And he will do that by the same Spirit who is now living in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. But not debtors to the sinful flesh to live according to it. Now, if you live according to the sinful flesh, you will experience death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the sinful body, you will experience life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and the daughters of God. Remember, when you became a Christian, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption as fully privileged sons and daughters. And by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we really are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are all of us heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But if we were to share with Christ in his glory, then we must also share in his suffering. I consider that the things we are suffering in this present age are nothing when compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Right now, the creation waits with eager longing for the age when the sons and daughters will be fully transformed into glory. Against its will, the created world was subjected to futility. You see, God subjected it to the curse of death and decay because of our sin. But this judgment upon the created world has hope because the created world itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and will finally obtain the, the freedom of the glory that will be ours as the children of God. And that is why, as we know, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. And not only does the creation groan, but we ourselves groan too. We who have the spirit within us as a foretaste of the age to come, 
we groan inwardly as we wait with, with eagerness for this final stage of our adoption as sons and daughters, the day when these bodies of ours will be released from the bondage of sin and decay. This is hope. And we stepped into this hope when we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for something that is already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we truly hope and we wait for it with patience. That same spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, there are times when we do not know how to pray for something the way God wants us to pray. But in those very moments, the Spirit himself steps in on our behalf and he prays for us to the Father with groanings too deep to be expressed with mere words. And the Father, who searches and knows our hearts, also knows what is the mind of the Spirit during those prayers. Because the Spirit has intervened for us believers according to the will of God. Here's something else we know. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God loved his chosen people before there was anything. And having loved them in eternity past, he predestined them to become, become conformed to the image of his son, Jesus in order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, God also called to come to Christ. And having called them, he also justified them. He gave them right standing before him. And having justified them, he also gave them his glory. Oh my. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? After all, God did not spare his own son, but rather gave him up for all of us. So, Having given us Christ, won't God also give us freely everything else that we need? Who shall bring anything against, any sort of charge against the people that God chose to be his? No one. For it is God who gave us right standing before him. Who is there to condemn us? No one. 
Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. More than that, he's the one who was raised for us. He's the one who's sitting at the right hand of God for us. He's the one who is pleading for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do things like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword Do these sorts of things mean that God no longer loves us? It is written in Scripture, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, these difficulties do not mean that God no longer loves us. Instead, in all of them, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Listen, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither evil angels or demonic rulers, neither terrifying things today or terrifying things tomorrow, nor the powers of hell, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you and me from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is Romans 8. What do we say? Dare I add anything? I must. My second goal, a major minor goal. As I said, I know of no other chapter in the Bible that gives reason after reason, truth after truth, incentive after incentive to press on in faith. To be Durable and courageous in faith, to be resilient in faith, and to discover, therefore, fully the love of God that is in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, the chapter begins, as I pointed out, with no condemnation, it ends with no separation. And in between you get statements like these. Verse 15, no fear or cringing before God. Uh, Verse 26, no abandonment by God. Verse 28, no accidents in your life because of God. And those are just five of the promises in this chapter. Promise after promise, blessing after blessing, Truth after truth. But they are all nothing if you are not in Christ. 
Because if you look at the text, verse 1, the chapter begins and the chapter ends. And in between, the chapter is full of the phrase, in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, verse 39, nothing able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's all over the place. In Christ. Please understand this. That as long as Jesus Christ remains outside of you, you there, and you therefore remain outside of Christ, then, then all the promises in Romans 8, that Jesus has won through his death and his resurrection, they remain useless and of no value to you. They're just words on a page. But if and when you open your heart in simple faith to Jesus Christ, if you, as Paul puts it earlier in this book, if you, excuse me, later in this book, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead as your Savior, then you will be saved and Christ will be in you and you will be in Christ. And then there will be no condemnation. And then there will be no fear or cringing. And then there will be no abandonment. And then there will be no accidents. And then nothing, nothing will ever, ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me now to make sure that you are in Christ. Please, will you join me in prayer? Eternal Father, glorious God, God of love who's given to us Jesus, You call us to trust in you. Your son Jesus calls us to trust in him. Jesus put it this way. Behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. Lord Jesus, you're asking me to open the door of my heart so that you may come in as risen Lord and risen Savior. And once you come in, once you are, are in me, then I am, by your grace, I am in you, Jesus Christ. So I say to you this morning, risen Lord Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. Please come into me so that I may be in you. So that I may then know that nothing can ever separate me from the love of God that is in you. I pray this humbly in your name.
Amen.